On May 27th, 1943, during the Second Great War, there was an airplane named the Green Hornet. It was flying over the Pacific Ocean on a search and rescue mission. They'd been flying for a couple of hours in search of a missing airplane when their engines suddenly stopped without warning, lost power. The plane descended rapidly and the men braced for impact. Only three out of the 11 crew members survived the crash. One of them would survive for 33 days at sea before perishing. But the other two, including famed Olympian Louis Zamperini, would float aimlessly at sea for a total of 43 days before being saved. They kept themselves alive by eating raw fish and raw birds and drinking rainwater. Their thirst was, at times, agonizing. They were so desperate for something, anything to drink, that they would use all of their energy paddling from one storm cloud to the next, collecting as much clean rainwater as they could. The irony here, you have to admit, is pretty thick. They've crashed into water. They're floating in water. There's nothing but water as far as the eye can see. But that's seawater. And they know that they would not survive by drinking seawater. It might seem temporarily uh, refreshing to their thirst, and it might even meet their their immediate need of something wet. But the salt in the seawater would actually pull the wetness out of their body. It would dehydrate them, and it would only make them more thirsty. And as they become more and more dehydrated, they would become more and more confused and delirious, and eventually it would likely lead to their death. During their 43 days at sea, their hope was occasionally stirred by a rescue plane that would fly overhead. And as the planes flew by, the survivors would shoot off flares that should have been seen, even through the low, thick clouds that were there. But their hope sank as they watched the planes disappear into the horizon time and time again. They felt invisible. They felt hopeless. And they felt helpless. The men were driven and tossed by the wind for 43 days until they hit land eventually on the Marshall Islands. None of us have experienced, I'm assuming, that sort of desperate hopelessness of actually literally being lost at sea. But I wonder if some of us have had that same similar feeling in our gut of being desperate, of being disoriented. Maybe it's just after a difficult breakup Or maybe you've been laid off for a long period of time with no way to provide for your family. Perhaps you're reeling from the loss of a loved one. Or you're watching a dear family member or friend walk away from Jesus. Maybe you've been given a diagnosis that, as it was delivered to you, sort of seemed to pull the floor out from underneath you. What do we do in times like these? If you believe in God during times of trials and times of suffering, it seems like, it seems like we've got two options here. On one hand, you can, say, you can say either that, well, I know God is wise, but he might not be powerful enough or wise enough to do anything about my circumstances. He might be wise, but not powerful. Or on the other hand, he might be powerful enough to do something about my circumstances, but apparently he's not wise enough to actually know what I need and to know what's good for me. James wants us to see, though, that those two trains of thought are riding on two tracks of worldly, earthly, 
unspiritual, demonic even, wisdom. If you've been tempted to ride those rails of thought, James's advice is to, for you to faithfully seek the wisdom of God. That's the big idea from our text this morning. Hopefully we'll be able to see that clearly. That we should faithfully seek the wisdom of God. Let's do that now together in prayer. Would you join me? Father, we come to your word this morning recognizing, acknowledging that we do often lack wisdom. I pray for those who are here this morning who might need a word of encouragement, recognizing that uh, you are powerful, that you are wise, and that you are good all at once. Father, sometimes our lives feel chaotic. We ask for wisdom this morning. Help us to understand who we are, who you are, what your plans are for us, and what your plans are for the world. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in everything that happens here this morning. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our verses this morning come from the book of James, which was written by Jesus' half-brother, James. He wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were being persecuted. Uh, These Christians were pushed out of their homes, and they had gone into hiding, probably because of the persecution that they faced, like the stoning of Stephen, similar to what we just heard about earlier from George's prayer about the church in China, uh, that persecution that's come upon these Christians. So James writes this letter to his fellow believers in the midst of their trials to encourage them to grow in faith and to grow in obedience. James begins his letter by focusing on suffering and trials, and that makes sense considering the fact that they've been so persecuted. And from the way that James is writing, it seems that their trials have left these Christians at a bit of a loss. They're asking questions, questions like, how should we live in light of this persecution that we're facing? Or why has God allowed his people to suffer and to die? Am I going to be next? How should we face these trials and temptations in faith? Why does this not make any sense? You can imagine that sort of anxiety that might be welling up in their hearts, in their minds, as they fear for their own lives under this persecution. And James meets them in their fear by drawing their attention to the wisdom of God in verses 5 through 8. And that's where we're going to focus this morning. His advice to those in the midst of the trials that they face is to faithfully seek the wisdom of God. But in order to do that, in order to really do that, we have to recognize first that God is the source of wisdom. That's the first point that we need to see in verse five. Look again there at verse five, where we see that God is a generous and loving source of all wisdom. It says there, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given him. God is the generous and loving fount of all wisdom. When you read the book of James, it sort of seems like he jumps around a lot to a lot of different disconnected ideas, but that's not actually true. Verse 5 follows verses 2 through 4 on purpose. If you've got your Bible there, look just above our section that we've read from to verse 2. Read James 1, 2 to four with me. Let me read that. 
It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So reading those verses that come before our passage help us understand. One day our faith will be complete and we will lack nothing. But for now, there is at least one thing that we do lack, verse 5 tells us, which is wisdom. And so when we see that connection there between what's going on in 2 to 4 and then 6 to 8, we realize that the wisdom that James has in mind here is specifically related to facing trials of various kinds. You know, as, as Christians, James tells us, we are instructed to count our facing trials as all joy because we know that the testing of our faith should ultimately strengthen our faith. But that's not something that comes naturally to us, is it? We lack the wisdom that it takes to respond to our trials joyfully. It's not something that comes naturally. And so James says, all right, well, if you need help responding to your trials with joy, ask God for wisdom. When you picture a wise woman or a wise man, what sort of characteristics might define them? They might be able to discern right from wrong. They might be able to judge true from false, even in the most confusing of circumstances. They have a clear end goal in mind with their actions. They're in control of their passions. They're not swayed or persuaded by emotion. Their wisdom is learned and earned through age and through wisdom and through dedication and passion. But wisdom in humans comes and goes. We recognize that, right? Even at our best, none of us is perfectly wise all the time. But the very essence of God is wisdom. With God, there is no confusion. He's never surprised. There's no lack of wisdom in God ever at any point. He never gains or loses wisdom. His understanding is not cloudy. He doesn't see through a glass darkly like you and I do. Oh, but us, yes, friends, we need wisdom. Wisdom is something that we always need more of. Some of us need to be encouraged this morning by how different God is from you. You lack wisdom, God does not lack wisdom. Just as when we get together to think about God's holiness and it reminds us of our own sinfulness, so should his wisdom remind us of our foolishness. So when James says, if by chance any of you happens to lack wisdom and you don't have the mysteries of life completely figured out, in your heart, you ought to be raising your hand and saying, yes, that is me. I don't get it. I lack wisdom. I don't understand how to respond to what's been happening. Since we lack wisdom, James says, we should ask God. Notice that God gives wisdom generously, and he gives it without reproach. You know, God is the source of wisdom, but God does not hoard wisdom. He does not hide his wisdom from us. He is generous with it. You know, sometimes I have a wrong-headed view of God that makes him out to be sort of stingy with his gifts, like wisdom, but he's generous. My family likes to go to Cafe Rio on Tuesdays for Taco Tuesday. Big fan. I get the sweet pork and the beef. And when they start making your tacos, if you've been there before, you know that they dip their tongs into the little thing of meat, 
and they'll put some of it onto your plate, a little tin plate. And whenever they start doing that, I'm always wondering in my head, all right, how's this going to go? Are they going to be generous? Are they going to be stingy? And they're usually super generous. But there's every now and then they'll put too much on the plate and then they start to put it back where they got it from. In my mind, if it hit the plate, it's mine now. You can't, you can't put it back. How stingy is that? God's not like that though. He loves to give wisdom. He doesn't love to withhold his wisdom. And not only is he generous, but he gives without reproach. Reproach is like insulting or humiliating you. Uh, He doesn't find fault with us. James is saying that you shouldn't be tempted to keep your worries to yourself because you think that God's going to shame you if you admit that you need wisdom from him. That the Lord does not criticize your lack of wisdom. He's not shocked. He's not annoyed at your ignorance. God is wise enough to know when you need wisdom. And he knows that you lack it. Now, I don't know if this is true of you, but I have a hard time asking for help, sort of in general. Um, in scheduling teachers here or even musicians or volunteers or even around the house, I have a hard time going back to the same people over and over again asking for help. I think it's because I'm afraid that if I keep pressing them, that they're going to dry up in their kindness towards me. That they might be a little bit bitter towards me. And that's probably because that's the way that I am prone to respond myself, which is not great. And at times I think of my prayer to God in the same way. Like, well, I can't ask him. I've already asked him like a thousand times. I can't go back. But the fact is, the more that we go to God in prayer with our requests, the more welcome that we are. God's love towards us is not wearied. It's not the way it works. He doesn't face us with reproach or with shame when we need to turn to him. He loves to give wisdom. We do often lack wisdom, don't we? But let me ask you a personal question. Do you even want this wisdom? We can't assume that you do. Wisdom, true wisdom, is understanding and applying God's word to unique circumstances. It often requires hard work. It requires discipline. It takes time to become wise. Younger folks, do you want to be wise? Is spiritual maturity actually appealing to you? Uh, you know, I'm afraid that from time to time we actually end up more concerned about being popular Uh, than we are about being wise and mature. But let's continue to be the kind of church that looks to older Christians, more mature Christians, with respect, recognizing that they have been given wisdom by God through prayer and in their trials, and they are willing to share it with you. Wisdom from older Christians is a precious gift that he gives to his church, a gift that we should cherish You know, you don't just get wiser as you get older. It doesn't just happen to you. It's not a passive sort of thing. You have to put effort into it. The passage of time is necessary for wisdom, but it doesn't guarantee it. It takes discipline to get wisdom. Reading and understanding God's word, praying for it faithfully, seeking counsel from other trusted Christians, really trying to actually apply it in your life, and it's worth it. Wisdom is worth it. Wisdom is better than gold. 
his word says. It's sweeter than honey. It leads to eternal life and to joy and to happiness. So the question, I have to ask it again, do you actually want wisdom? You can't assume that you do. Are you willing then to ask God if you truly want it? When we face trials, we need wisdom for very specific things. And I have four of them that I'm going to suggest. I don't think this is a comprehensive list, but maybe it's a, a way to start. I think the first thing we need wisdom for in facing trials is this, to understand what God is accomplishing in trials. You know, from our perspective, life can often look so chaotic, but that's only because we lack the wisdom of God. We don't have his perspective. He knows what he's doing, and he is good, and he is powerful, and he is wise. We also need his wisdom to know how we can grow and serve others or glorify God with our trials. If God has allowed suffering in our lives, then there must be something redemptive in it. So how can we grow, how can we encourage others in the midst of the trials that we face? We also need God's wisdom to know what actions to take moving forward. So oftentimes we get distracted and disoriented by the blows of life and we just don't know how to move forward. What is next? When we're shell-shocked, we need to ask for wisdom from God. What should I do next? And we need wisdom to bring our emotions back into check. Emotions are good. Emotions are good and they're an important part of our human makeup. That's the way that God has made us. But sometimes our overreactions actually only make things worse. We need God's wisdom to help speak sense into our emotions and sort of bring us back into reality. Just a few things that we need God's wisdom for as we face trials. So what are some areas in your life where you need wisdom right now? I want us to pause together to really look deeply into this promise. And it is a promise. God promises to give you wisdom for the trials that you face. Verse five says that God gives generously and without reproach. Listen, God loves to give wisdom. He loves to reward your request for wisdom. He doesn't want you to hesitate to come to him. This is a sure promise that Christians should cling to. But it's a promise with a condition. It's a promise with a condition. You have to faithfully seek his wisdom. It does no good to seek his wisdom without believing that he's actually going to give it to you, or worse, asking for it and hating it when he gives it to you. Verses six through eight show us that asking for wisdom without faith is madness. Asking for wisdom without faith is madness. Verses six through eight say this. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So that first verse described the character of God for us. He's wise, he is good, he is generous. And now the ball is in our court in these verses. God's all in on our wisdom. Now the question is, are we all in on God? God's hand is open to give wisdom. Are our hearts open to receive it? I love the word picture that James uses here. 
One who asks for wisdom from God but doubts that he'll actually get it is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed to and fro by the wind. A few years ago, I got to go on a a deep sea fishing trip with Pastor Josh in Florida. I had a really great time, caught some amazing looking fish. But as I was talking with him on the deck before we got onto the boat, I was just explaining that I have what I consider to be a healthy fear of the ocean. He might quibble with my word choice there, but that's how I see it. I like the ocean. I respect it. I just really have no desire whatsoever to be inside of it. If it's a boat, I'm cool because then at least I can pretend to be on dry ground. I've got some stability there. The more I think about it, though, I think the reason that I don't like the ocean is because I have no control in it. There's literally no telling what's under that water. If there's a shark coming at me, I've got no shot at out swimming it. Not a great swimmer to begin with. But also, uh, I, I don't even know where the gills are to punch it. I think that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> but if a rogue wave comes and hits me in the ocean, I'm probably done for. Listen, the ocean is beautiful. I respect it. I love it. I do admire it. But it's unpredictable. The ocean is unpredictable. If I was dropped out in the ocean, I would be at the mercy of the winds to guide and direct me. And I would be in very real danger. You know, it really does come down to an issue of control for me. I want to be able to give myself a reasonable chance at making it and surviving throughout the day. And so I stick to areas where I have some stability, like dry ground. Think about it, though. The waves that are in the ocean don't have any control over where they go. The wind determines where a wave will go. It has no stability in and of itself. It's just at the mercy of the wind. And so that's why James's word picture is so great here. It perfectly describes a person who asks God for wisdom while not actually being committed to God. James says, let him ask in faith without doubting. This doubting here isn't speaking of brief intellectual doubts about God. The context tells us that he's getting at something a little bit different here. This doubt is a question of trust. This doubt is a question of devotion. In the Old Testament, God's people were told to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Jesus reaffirmed that as being the first and great commandment in the New Testament. We are to be spiritually and morally loyal to the Lord with a singular sort of focus, This doubt here is not an absence of perfect faith that James is talking about. This doubt is a belief that God's wisdom isn't actually what we truly need. You know, sometimes people act like they want wisdom until they're actually confronted with wisdom. You know what I mean? And maybe you know somebody who's had issues, maybe of their own making, who asks for help, they ask for wisdom. And they pray and they seek God's word and they ask for counsel. But then when they find that wisdom and it doesn't line up with their own desires, they reject it. It turns out that that wasn't God's wisdom that they wanted at all. They wanted confirmation of their own desires. Let me give you an example. You can picture a woman who is preparing to marry a non-Christian man. She's in love with him and he's nice. And so when she reads in the Bible that it's unwise to marry an unbeliever... She dismisses it. Well, that doesn't apply to me. Uh, God doesn't know my Johnny. Have you ever done something like that? 
Maybe it's a man who wants to justify an ungodly divorce or dismiss his destructive patterns of behavior. Really, is just nothing serious. This is the sort of doubt that James is getting at here. These people are double-minded. Double-souled is maybe a more literal translation. They're not loving the Lord with their whole soul, their whole heart. Their prayers and their actions are at odds with one another. They want to be wise, but at the same time, they want to live unwisely. And James says, that's madness. It's a person split in two. They ask for wisdom, and yet they want to live in foolishness. When you have no real desire to obey God's wisdom when you ask for it, you shouldn't expect God to give you wisdom. That person should not suppose that he should receive anything from the Lord. Later in his letter, James contrasts wisdom from above, which is to say godly wisdom, with earthly and unspiritual and demonic wisdom. There is a wisdom that is godless in the world. Uh, It is a wisdom that promises to bring life, it promises to bring fulfillment, but it actually leads to death. The thinking of worldly wisdom goes something like this. If there's no God, then there's no wisdom that's outside of ourselves. We can search after wisdom outside of ourselves. We'll never find it. There is nothing transcendent outside of us. So what we need to do is look for truth deep inside of ourselves. So we must deeply look inside of ourselves to find our own truth and live that truth out. This is a false wisdom of the age. It is destructive and it's deadly. The wisdom of the world is as wicked as seawater. Friends, when you feel lost at sea, don't drink the seawater. I know you're surrounded by it. I know it looks sparkly. I know it looks refreshing. And it might even temporarily satisfy your thirst. But it will lead to confusion. It will lead to madness. And it will lead to death. Don't try to justify your unwise decisions because they look refreshing. Just as Louis Zamperini chased after fresh water from storm clouds, we too must seek the heavens. Fresh rain, pure wisdom from above. Well, you ask, well, how are we supposed to know the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom? Well, here are a few warning signs that you might be working with worldly wisdom. When you're making a big life decision and you only ask for counsel from people that you know will agree with you. When you make a decision that you instinctively feel that you need to hide from your Christian friends. When you haven't prayed about it. When your decisions and your desires are never challenged by God. They're only affirmed when God's wisdom always looks suspiciously like your own. When you think that your situation is unique and God's clear instructions don't apply to you. When you haven't first considered whether or not your choice will lead you to glorify God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Beware the seawater of worldly wisdom. There is a way that seems right to man but it leads to death. So how then should we ask for wisdom? How do we ask for wisdom? Simply, 
and in faith. Seeking God through his word and in prayer. There, there is no secret combination of words that you're supposed to say or anything. When you're praying and you need wisdom, simply say, God, give me wisdom. Or if you're praying with others, say, God, give us wisdom. Because there is a community aspect to wisdom. God, in his wisdom, chooses to use other people to bring us understanding and peace when we're in times of trial and suffering. And so there is a very real sense in which we should be praying for wisdom together as a church or as groups of Christians. Well, back to the picture of being tossed about to and fro by the waves. My problem with the ocean is that I don't have control over it. Uh, we all want control, I think, don't we? Don't we all want to be able to have all of our lives center around us and our desires, our wants? Well, here's some beautiful, freeing news for you this morning. Wisdom is given not for us to gain control over life, but to acknowledge God's control. That's why later in his own letter, James in chapter 4, will say that boasting about your own plans apart from acknowledging God's ultimate authority in your life, is evil. He says it's evil to do that. When you're staring trouble in the face, recognize that God is in control and God is good and faithfully seek the wisdom of God. Seek his wisdom and don't doubt that he's going to give it to you. Seek his wisdom and learn more and more about the character of your creator who is generous and good as he's revealed himself in scripture. Seek his wisdom and don't run away from it when you find it and it's uncomfortable to you. Seek his wisdom and ask for a desire to obey it. Seek his wisdom and rejoice when you find it because it leads to life and it leads to joy. God is wisdom. It's the very essence of his being. It's who he is. But there's also a personal wisdom of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he says that Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, in whom we have righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God's wisdom is shown to us in giving up his son for the suffering and judgment of the cross where God righteously brings salvation and forgiveness for those who trust in him. So if Jesus then has willingly suffered, our suffering and our trials are not senseless. We don't know the reasons why he allows trials to continue in our lives, but we know that he is infinitely powerful and wise and good. He is not indifferent he is not cold to our suffering because he takes our misery, he takes our suffering onto himself at the cross. That's how seriously he takes it. He gets involved with it. On the cross, Jesus suffered with us and more importantly, for us. Jesus Christ himself is the personal wisdom of God because he opens up to us the mysteries of God. He is the definition of God's wisdom. So in your times of confusion and concern, remember who God is. Remember what he's done for you in Christ. Christian, draw near to God. If you find yourself being double-minded or doubting, 
cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. This is James' instruction to us in chapter 3. If you're double-minded, purify your heart. If you're a non-Christian, I know that the cross sounds like foolishness to you, but even the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. It's a supernatural and it's an altogether surprising wisdom. It's not the sort of wisdom that you would come up with on your own. What wisdom once devised a plan where all of our sin and our pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, bled, and died? It's the wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified his son rejoice around his throne. So friends, if he has done this, for your salvation, in order to bring you joy and forgiveness in sin. He can be trusted to do all things well throughout all of your life in order to bring you sweetness in trials, joy in sorrow, and a sense that he is truly a generous heavenly father. So when you feel like you're drowning out at sea and the breakers and the waves are surrounding you, Remember that Christ has the power and the authority and wisdom to calm your anxious seas. Faithfully seek the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love your word. Father, would you help us to desire your wisdom more than we did when we walked in today? Uh, We know that there are people going through various trials this morning. People who need wisdom. People who need to know what it is that you're accomplishing. People who need to know what it is that you would want for them to do next. People who want to be able to glorify you with their lives. Father, help us to trust in your goodness and your power and your wisdom. Help us to live this week as people who do truly trust in you, recognizing that you're a good, loving, generous Father who loves us enough to send his own Son to take on our sins in our place. It's through Jesus Christ that we ask these things. Amen.